0: Here is iUniverse
1: Radio with
0: host Steve Jorgensen.
1: The title of the book, 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker, 9-11-2001, The White House. And the author is Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darling, U.S. Marine Corps, retired. And we welcome Bob now to iUniverse Radio. Hello, Bob.
2: Hello, Steve, and thanks for having me on.
1: Well, it's a thrill to have you here, and this is a, a startling inside look at 24 hours following the attack on the World Trade Centers. Uh, I'm going to read a couple things that you have written. First of all, though, I, I want to everyone to understand that the National Security Council has reviewed the contents of this book for the purpose of safeguarding our country's classified information. And has approved it for publication. That's important that everyone understands that you have written this with complete approval of the government. Yes. All right. You say this. The day America changed forever and how I directly supported the vice president, national security advisor, and national command authority as the attack on America was in progress Someone else has written this about you. 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker is the story of Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darlene and his account of what took place at the top of the United States chain of command on September 11, 2001 as the U.S. government struggled to respond to the sudden terrorist strike launched against our nation. Well, this is very dramatic and just a lot of answers to a lot of questions, Bob. Uh, what prompted you to uh, write the book, which I'm sure was something that you can never forget and probably have dreamt about a lot?
2: You know, when the, when this first happened, I was on, it was 2001, obviously, I was on active duty, and, you know, an active duty Marine Corps officer, you know, it's very difficult to actually get in there and write something and get it all the way through the chain of command and uh, it just would have taken forever with so many people wanting to read it and get involved in it. So I waited till I was fully retired, and my purpose for writing this book was to get the history correct. I wanted to have a full, accurate account, and I wanted to share it with everyone, the American public, of the crisis leadership decisions that were made that day on behalf of all Americans. Some of those were gut-wrenching decisions. They were based on unfiltered, real-time information, and I think it's just so important that the American public have it and understand the, the you know, the level of intensity and decision-making that occurs that day.
1: So you were at the President's Emergency Operations Center, and where is that located?
2: Yeah, that's beneath the White House. The exact location, obviously, is, is classified. It is the emergency operation. It's a hardened emergency operations center, you know, designed for the President and his top advisors in the case of, you know, some some catastrophic event that occurs uh, in and and around Washington.
1: And how did you end up inside this command center?
2: I was a a Marine helicopter pilot. I was part of the Marine Helicopter Squadron 1. I was flying as a co-pilot for President Clinton for a few years, and I was a pilot command for Vice President Gore. When inside the White House military office, there's also a senior aviator that needs to be a liaison with the president's staff. And when our liaison officer moved on to his next assignment, there was a vacancy there. The commanding officer asked me to fill that vacancy, so then I was working in the Eisenhower Building, which is adjacent to the West Wing, and I was a subject matter expert on helicopter operations for the president's staff. The primary role of that job is to do logistics. As a president travels worldwide. He never goes anywhere without secure telephones, his secret service hard cars and limousines, and of course his marine helicopters. We move all that equipment out of Andrews Air Force Base to locations worldwide three or four days prior to him arriving on Air Force One fully exercise and rehearsed. so when he gets there to conduct his political agenda, we are there ready to support him. My primary job was to make sure that equipment was placed in time and returned immediately after his departure on Air Force One. On 9-11-2001, I had uh, arranged and coordinated and planned his mission to Florida, Sarasota, Florida. That day I was anticipating him coming back on Air Force One and then you know, retrograding is the term we use to get all the equipment back out of Florida and back up to Andrews. Well, after the Pentagon was struck, we we all watched CNN, we saw the towers were struck. Soon after the Pentagon was struck, it was obvious to us all in the Airlift Operations Department there that our president would not be returning to Washington, but would be, in fact, going to some other undisclosed location. Wherever he was going to go, obviously there was no presidential logistics package waiting for him. I was then ordered down to the President's Emergency Operations Center with logistics on my mind. And as soon as I got through the big door and the big door closed, uh, I was immediately um, summoned to put that down for the moment and help answer the phones that were obviously ringing off the hook from information coming down or other people seeking information. And that's where the story picks up.
1: So what were you feeling at that moment in time?
2: Well, like everybody else, uh, it was an unbelievable sight. Uh, Just watching the news up there in New York and at the time we were thinking that we needed to get FEMA and first responders and all that equipment up to uh, help the police fire port authority and hospital members up there in New York when uh, when the Pentagon was struck we realized that we had this terrorist attack that was not only in New York but going on in Washington so I'm thinking hey our country's under attack my role is to support the president I'm not about to evacuate the White House when everybody else is leaving. I'm going down there to do my job, and my job at the time was logistics. And when I got down there and the phones were ringing and the military aide told me to answer the phones, the first phone call I got, um, Steve, was from the Situation Room, which is the very popular Situation Room. It's located in the West Wing. All information goes into the Situation Room, but because Washington was under attack, uh, the information now was being sent downstairs into the PEOC, and I was being fed real-time information for what was going on outside.
1: Who became the decision-maker on that fatal day?
2: My first phone call was, this is the situation room. We have a hijacked plane 16 miles south of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, inbound Washington, D.C. And my, my response was, okay, you're going to have to hold on. I turned to find the military aide for the vice president who was in the room, and lo and behold, there was the vice president himself standing a foot away from me going, Major, what do you got? So I started feeding him vice president, 16 miles south of Pittsburgh, inbound Washington, D.C. We have another hijacked plane. He turned to the speaker phones, and obviously the room was filling up with staffers, and Sec. Uh, the National Security Advisor was there, and Lynn Cheney, and, and Secretary Mineta. Everybody's into, the, into my corner of the room. The speaker boxes on the wall were chiming to life, and the first person he spoke to was this gentleman named Rick from the FAA Command Center, saying, Rick, can you confirm that we have a hijacked plane south of Pittsburgh inbound, Washington, D.C.? They came back a few minutes later, Mr. Vice President, it's not squawking the transponder code. It's well off course. That's a hijacked plane. So now the Vice President um, really amazed all of us. We anticipated him trying to ask more questions, how far away, how fast it's going, where do you think it's headed, and instead... He went right into what he knows from his previous experiences and all the jobs he had as Chief of Staff and Secretary of Defense and Vice President to say um, to the Pentagon, I want two F-15s out a Otis Air National Guard base. Let me know when they're airborne. Stand by to shoot this plane down. So you heard the Pentagon then roger up. Um, we're scrambling F-15s. They're supersonic over Long Island. They're five minutes out from the target. They want to be confirmed. Weapons free to engage. And he said, of course, they're weapons free to engage. Within a few minutes, we heard aircraft down, aircraft down, 68 miles south of Pittsburgh. And the vice president, the room, as you can imagine, Steve, was sucked out of the room, who was dead silent, with all eyes on the vice president, who just uh, did the ultimate uh, leadership, crisis leadership decision to stop this aircraft full of terrorists from reaching its target uh, in Washington, D.C., He turned towards me, walked right over and said, for the congressional inquiry, state your full name. From Robert Joseph Darling to the vice president to the National Military Command Center in the Pentagon, we just shot that plane down. I really need to talk to the president.
1: Wow. Everyone feeling that a lot of innocent civilians, American citizens, had just been killed with this decision by the vice president.
2: Well, I, I think that's the way we initially felt, was the Air Force had taken lethal action against this commercial airliner. But the, really, the, the truth of the matter was, the moment those terrorists took control of that aircraft, it was no longer a commercial airliner. It was a 150-ton Tomahawk cruise missile heading for a target. Uh, it was not intending to land. It was not intending to divert. It didn't have any demands other than crash into its predetermined target somewhere in Washington, D.C., and and really we believed that was going to be the the state, our capital, national capital. And the vice president did. uh, He was so far ahead of the rest of us as far as seeing it for what, unfortunately, it really was. And the good news is, and I want to make this perfectly clear to to the listeners, that a few minutes later, within really two minutes later, all the radios came to life that, in fact, the F-15s never fired. The F-15s never fired. The aircraft Flight 93 was on the ground when they got there. It was the passengers who refused to let the terrorists win. They united themselves. They stormed the cockpit. They tried to take back their aircraft, and they themselves thwarted the attempts of these terrorists to reach their target in Washington, D.C. We truly have a plane full of heroes and not a plane full of victims. Uh, That's where the credit really lies.
1: And you believe a hero in Vice President Cheney that day as well?
2: Well, we needed a hero. We needed someone to take charge. As you know, the the National Command Authority is the ultimate legal authority to order our military in the action. And and on that particular day, President Bush was really en route to Air Force One to try to get on air Force One, to get airborne on Air Force One, the Secretary of Defense was just suffered an impact on the Pentagon. He was outside, uh, you know, assessing the damage. And we needed someone like Vice President Cheney to get the military in motion, to not sit back and let these terrorists go four out of four uh, on their targets, but instead to do what needed to be done. And he was the perfect guy. He was the, the, the crisis leader of the day who made that happen.
1: Well also your book covers the near killing of a medical evacuation helicopter as it was headed toward the White House. We don't have time for those details as well as uh, you took a call from res- uh, Russian President Putin.
2: I sure did. I sure did. And if you want me just to, to share that with you we had just the president was the president was on the line and we had just he just recommended we move our strategic nuclear forces to a higher state of readiness in an attempt to get all the military back to work worldwide. It was the quickest way to do a recall, if you will. And we went from uh, DEFCON 4 to DEFCON 3. We were standing by DEFCON 2. It went to the Pentagon by executive order of the president, out to Cheyenne Mountain, and then from Cheyenne Mountain out to the four-star combatant commanders. And then you could hear them roger up that the United States is now moving from DEFCON 4 to DEFCON 3. We're standing by 2. And with a few minutes of the Russian president had called in his phone call was patched down. I answered the phone. I said, I have Russian President Vladimir Putin on the line. Will you take the call? And obviously I was um, saying, well, you're going to have to hold on just one second. And I turned, seeking the vice president, yelled out, Mr. Vice President, I have President Putin on the phone. Will you take the call? He sent Dr. Rice over. She grabbed it through an interpreter. She, just very plain language, thanked him for his call, told him our president was in motion. We don't know the size and scope of the attack but thank you for standing down your nuclear forces. So that obviously caught all of our attention there, and we later learned, or just quickly learned, that whenever we uh, heighten our readiness, nuclear posture, Russia does the same thing. It's part of an agreement we have, and they decided that day, based on the events that were taking place in our country, not to match the heightened readiness condition. They stood down, so there was no confusion between the two nuclear superpowers, what was going on.
1: And that evening, you saw the president?
2: president came back uh, about 6 o'clock p.m. That evening, he was met on the lawn by Dr. Rice. He quickly came in. He came down to the PIOC, and he's on the executive side of the PIOC. And if you're a cabinet member and you were able to get there before him, you were in. If not, you were out. And literally, uh, he's never been tested. All eyes were on him. President Bush walked in. He sat down. Right across the table from him was Vice President Cheney. And they started talking. So the president was just silent, and everybody was giving him the data dump. If you had something to say from your cabinet or from your area of responsibility, say it. If not, just uh, you know sit quietly. As it came all the way around to the table, President Bush looks up and says, FEMA, where are you at? And it was Joe Alba. He goes, I want you on the next plane out of here up to New York. Bring your checkbook. I heard to mess up there. Transportation, where are you? Here, Mr. President, said Secretary Mineta. He goes, I want planes, trains, and automobiles up and operating by noon tomorrow. When you figure it out, you let me know. I want to see my national security team upstairs in five minutes. The rest of you, thanks for coming. The president had had got his intelligence. He got a second daily briefing book. He knew that we were attacked by terrorists. He knew what terrorists. He knew what he wanted to have done. He was preparing the country for war. The rest of us at that time had just had to simply catch up to him. And out the door he goes, national security team upstairs, and everyone went back to trying to get the cabinet home and doing you know, what, we were, what we were challenged to do that day.
1: The title of the book, 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker, 9-11-2001, The White House. This is the personal account of the unprecedented actions taken to defend America. The author is Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darling, U.S. Marine Corps, retired. Bob, tell us how to get your book.
2: The book is available on Amazon.com right now, and it's also available through the iUniverse bookstore. Uh, Soon, soon, hopefully, it'll be in the brick and and mortars. but I need your listeners to go out there and demand they carry it. But uh, through the Internet right now, in those two locations, the book is ready to be purchased.
1: Sounds like an upcoming movie to me.
2: Uh, Thank you very much, Steve. (laughs) I enjoyed being on today.
1: Well, appreciate you, Bob. Thanks so much. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darling, his book, 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker. 9 11 2001, the White House.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back
3: right after these messages. Get ready for the Not So Soccer Bomb Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on Dougie Nat with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not So Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Now, live your story. Your brand is not just what you say it is. It's also what others say it is. So what are you communicating? And how can you create an authentic brand? We'll take on these challenges with What's Your Story? Every week, Hillary will feature teens, moms, and organizations that are learning and living their story. Now her passion is to help others discover, create, and live their personal brands. To find out more, go to inspiredbyfamily.com. It's What's Your Story with Hillary Bilbury. Friday mornings at 10 Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on Toginet.com.
0: Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: The title of the book, Fighting the Devil a true story of consuming passion, deadly poison, and murder. And the author is Jeannie Walker, and Jeannie joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jeannie. Hello,
4: Steve. Nice talking to you.
1: First of all, I want to emphasize this is a true story about murder that you have researched for 20 years. You know more about this case than anyone else, and you have finally published this book, to really bring about justice and also for the sake of the family uh, you were married to Jerry Sternadel and after you two split up uh, he remarried and then he was poisoned and eventually died there was a murder case and justice hasn't been fully fully uh, served yet has it uh no it
4: hasn't it sure hasn't still after one of the one of the suspects
1: Let me read what you have written. Uh, There was a time when millionaire rancher Jerry Sternadal gave all the orders. No one dared to tell him times were a-changing. When he discovered in May of 1990 that his wife, Luann, and his bookkeeper, Debbie Baker, had stolen thousands of dollars from him, he demanded the money back by Memorial Day, threatening to have them arrested for embezzlement if they did not. He also told his wife he was going to divorce her, and then... They had some lunch together. Tell us about that.
4: Well, he usually had lunch uh, with his wife and bookkeeper. That's just uh, the way he did. Uh, That way he didn't waste time uh, with work. So they always had lunch out at the office. So on this one particular day, uh, they went to the bookkeeper and the wife went to town and brought back some taco salad. And he sat down to eat with his wife and the bookkeeper. And after he ate his taco salad, he got deathly ill. Uh, and he he was the only one that got sick. So uh, he wound up with severe nausea and stomach cramps and diarrhea and vomiting, and he was sick all afternoon, and he thought that he got food poisoning. But he thought it was awful funny that he was the only one that got sick, but all of them ate the same thing. He thought they all ate the same thing.
1: And the doctors were just mystified by all of this.
4: Oh, yeah, they were, they were mystified when he went into the hospital the first time. Uh, they thought he had food poisoning. The, the the doctors thought he had food poisoning. He was in there a few days and got better and went went back home. And as soon as he got back home, uh, a day later, uh, he was back in the hospital, deathly ill again, with the same symptoms. So this time they started saying, "Well, this can't be food poisoning again." So then they started thinking, well, there's some kind of virus or something. So he was in the hospital the second time, and he started improving again. And then he got out of the hospital and was out of the hospital one day. And then he started getting deathly ill again and wound back up in the hospital. Uh, so this time, they don't, know, they don't know what's the matter with him. Because uh, uh, arsenic mimics all kinds of natural diseases and illnesses. So uh, who thinks that when you're getting sick, you're being poisoned? So nobody really ever ever thought that he was being poisoned until they started doing toxicology tests in the hospital. And so they found arsenic arsenic poison, they said, told him he was being poisoned with arsenic and wanted to know uh, how did he come to be sick with arsenic. Well, then he knew that his wife and bookkeeper were trying to kill him because he demanded the money back. That's what they they started feeding him poison instead of giving him the money back so to get rid of him so they wouldn't have to give the money back, and he wouldn't be able to divorce her, and she would be out on the street with nothing. So So when he found out about arsenic poison, he tried to get out of the hospital. Because uh, he started telling everybody that they stole money, and now uh, they're trying to kill him. And so the uh, his wife said that he's hallucinating from all the drugs and stuff you're giving him. So nobody they,
1: believed him at all?
4: Nobody believed him, no. But, you know, nobody believed that uh, uh, he he was telling them, uh, they fed me st- stuff, they're poisoning me, they're killing me, they're trying to kill me. They stole money from me. They stole $35,000 from me, and now they're trying to kill me. And and she was saying, he's hallucinating. He don't know what he's doing. It's all those drugs you're giving him, and he don't know what he's saying or what he's doing. So he tried to get out of the hospital. And when he tried to get out of the hospital, well, uh, they called the wife and said, he's trying to get out of the hospital. And she said, well, strap him down because he can't leave the hospital. He's too sick. So then they strapped him down in the hospital, strapped his hands and his feet down to the hospital bed. He stayed strapped down to the hospital bed until he died. And while he was in the hospital, the arsenic levels kept going up. So they how, were they, how, how were
1: they feeding him arsenic all this time?
4: They were feeding him. He got to where he wouldn't eat anything that they fixed. So then they started putting it in his drink. So they would bring him. Uh, they would bring him Coke and seven up to the hospital. And after he finally realized that he has been uh, poisoned, he wouldn't drink or any, eat anything. But by that time, he already had 4,895 micrograms of arsenic in his system, but he was already dying. So it was already too late when he even realized it, but he was still trying to get out of the hospital to save his life.
1: So, when did everything change? When did Luann and Debbie become the suspects?
4: Well, they were the suspect to start with because uh, you can't, uh, uh, when a person is poisoned to death, it's usually someone in the family that has access to the food and the drink that they're giving that person. So, they were the obvious suspect. And then when we found out a teenager had visited the ranch, and he accidentally drank some some cranberry juice that was in the refrigerator at the refri- in the at the ranch, and he became deathly ill after drinking the cranberry juice. Well, then uh, after we learned about the kid, well then we had him to go uh, do tests, and he wound up with 278 micrograms of arsenic in his system. Well, then we knew. How they were doing, giving him the arsenic, Jerry Sterndale, the arsenic, with the, the drink. And it was in the cranberry juice. So then, then, uh, we found the, ar- the cranberry juice bottle and had it sent off to the lab. Well, it had arsenic in it. The cranberry juice bottle had arsenic in it. So then we knew that the wife and, and definitely the wife, and the uh, bookkeeper stayed there all the time. She practically lived out at the ranch because the wife and the bookkeeper were really good friends. They was even closer than sisters, even. So we knew who the suspects were, was the, the bookkeeper and the wife. So, and that went on for quite some time until two years later, they found a, a, a storage warehouse owner called and said, uh we just uh, confiscated the uh, storage locker out here because the people didn't pay the rent, and we found some letters and stuff with Jerry Sternadell's name on it. So the cops went out there immediately, and when they were searching through the the, the contents of the locker, they found in a plastic bag uh, with uh, letters to Jerry Sternadell dated the day that he died on June the 12th, 1990. In that particular... Uh, plastic bag was a bottle of arsenic poison. So they found the arsenic poison and the storage locker was rented by the bookkeeper.
1: So that's when she was arrested.
4: That's when she was arrested. And that's when she was tried. She was arrested and and tried for the murder of Jerry Sternodell.
1: And found guilty, but a quirk in the Texas law. Tell us about that.
4: Well, she was found, the bookkeeper was found guilty of first-degree murder. Now, first-degree murder usually gets you the death pen, the penalty of 99 years in prison. But And we thought, okay, well, we've got her on first-degree murder. Now they're going to turn around and give her life in prison. Well, the next day, but when you're fighting the devil, you don't never know what he's going to throw at you. So the next, when they came up for sentencing for de- for the bookkeeper, The jury turned around and gave her probation for murder, for first-degree murder. And everybody was, it was almost a riot out at the courthouse when she wound up with probation. Nobody could believe it. Everybody was, when we got through being mad, we were devastated, The, the The uh, district attorney said this was a travesty of justice, and he wondered why he was even in the criminal justice system when something like this happened. Then I found out uh, from how the the jury was able to give her probation for first-degree murder was that there was a loophole in the Texas law that allowed uh, for probation to be given for murder, but that was written in the law for women... That were battered by husbands, or had to defend themselves. that that was that that was put in there for people like that, not for people like the bookkeeper. But they used it. So then we had to start fighting to trying to get the loophole in Texas law changed, so nobody else could get could do a, a vicious murder like this and get away with probation.
1: So somehow the judge let that slip by.
4: Well. He didn't have any choice because it is in the law that uh, if they hadn't committed any other crimes, and this was their first crime, and the jury decides to give probation, and it is allowed by law, he really couldn't do anything about
3: it.
1: So then you pursued her probation to make sure she was abiding by all the rules, and then uh, you finally had an opportunity.
4: Well, I, I... I checked on her for eight years, and she had ten years probation. So I had followed her for, for eight years, checking on her probation. And they kept saying she's doing everything she's supposed to do. That's all the information they allowed to give you. And so I said, well, okay, but I kept checking on her. And then I found out she wasn't doing everything she was supposed to be doing. And I saw, uh, and not only that, she had, was committing other crimes. He was committing other felonies in in the county that she moved to so i got a hold of the district attorney and told him you uh, she's violating her probation and you need to do something about it so he said well i'll check and see and, and if she is violating the probation well then i'll have her i'll uh, uh, file a revocation of her probation and put her in prison and when he did find out that she was violating her probation, that's exactly what he did. And she wound up in prison, and she's still in prison.
1: But the wife, Luann?
4: The wife, Luann, uh, nothing has ever happened to her. She, she inherited a million-dollar estate. She inherited a $350,000 life insurance policy, and she's still spot free.
1: So your view of this, Debbie Baker is going to get out of jail eventually, and then her good friend, uh, Luann, has all this money and uh, assets. Do you think that's just part of the plan?
4: Well, uh, she's Debbie Baker is supposed to be out of prison in 2013. That's when uh, she's supposed to get out of prison. Uh, she came up for parole twice uh, already but because there was such a... Uh, uh, The public protest was so high that uh, usually when you're in prison, which I'm learning all kinds of stuff since we became victims, but usually in prison you come up for parole every six months, something like that. But because of so much protest, uh, public protest for letting her out, she wasn't allowed to come up for parole but every four years. So she's come up for parole twice and each time there's been an outcry, public outcry of protest, so uh, she want, she can't even come up for uh, parole again until 2013, and that's when she's due to be released.
1: We have about a minute left, Jeannie. Of, will justice ever be completely served, do you think?
4: Well, I don't know. I, I know that it's our hope and our prayer that, that justice will finally be served. I know when you're fighting the devil... He's going to do everything to prevent justice, but I know that the Lord will always win out. No matter what, if you have the faith and believe in him, he will make things win out. So I believe it will.
1: So you feel that justice will be served as long as you keep fighting the devil every minute of every day, as you put it.
4: That's that's what you have to do. Uh, not only me, but you, you, everybody has to fight the devil every minute of every day. And we can't let our guard down either, and we can't give up.
1: So the story goes on. It hasn't finished yet. Even though you've published this book, the story is not finished yet.
4: No, this is just the first segment. So it's going to get its going to as interesting as this part is. I think the next part is going to be even more interesting.
1: And this book is filled with photos.
4: It is absolutely filled with photos. It's got 49 photographs in, in a book. And I've been told that not any book that they know of has that many photos.
1: So it documents all the players in this complete murder story?
4: Yes, it does. It documents every one of them.
1: Well, Jeannie, tell us how to get your
3: book.
4: Okay, well, I have a website uh, that people can go to. Uh, it doesn't have the www in it, but it's the uh, com. And uh, I just did a video trailer, and that's on YouTube. People can look at uh, that on YouTube, it's uh, look up Fighting the Devil by Jeannie Walker and then they can get it online and it will be in bookstores probably in November or maybe before. but it's online. They can get it online too. So it's all over the place.
1: Well, thank you, so, Jeannie. Thank you for being with us on iUniverse Radio.
4: Well, it's my pleasure. I sure appreciate it and I hope everybody goes out and gets the book.
1: That was Jeannie Walker. She is the author of her book, Fighting the Devil,
2: Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix.
3: Girlfriended is on DougieNet. And then be a part of Girlfriend It, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central.
4: You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me.
3: Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back
0: to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: The title of the book, The Boy Who Conquered Everest. And the author is Catherine Blank. And this iUniverse Radio segment is brought to you by Balboa Press. Hello, Catherine. Hello. Well, this is such an honor to have you on the show. What a story about jordan romero he may be a best kept secret but it won't be long because of your book and other things that will be going on jordan who is now 14 climbed mount everest now that is beyond comprehension for most of us as adults or certainly as teenagers can't even begin to understand how this year may 22nd 2010 at 9 45 a.m he reached the summit of Mount Everest, tell us how you got involved with him, and tell us about how this Jordan's uh, dream all started.
5: Okay, I got involved with this book because Jordan and I live in the same little mountain town, Big Bear Lake, California, and uh, Jordan comes from a long line of athletes on both sides of the family. Uh, but he he really came to uh, the attention of local media when he was nine years old, and he declared that he was going to, uh, along with his parents, his father and his stepmother, Karen, uh, they were he was going to attempt to summit all seven of what are known as the Seven Summits, which are the, the tallest mountains on each of the seven continents in the world, and there, there are actually eight of them, so uh, he set his sight on climbing all eight, and I was following this story in the local newspaper. Nobody really knew much about him outside of this region, but uh, I kept telling myself, this would make a great story. This kid is amazing, and look what he's doing, and he's got such a great attitude, and he wants to help other kids. And I thought, oh, I just kept thinking about it, but it never got beyond thought for the first three and a half years. And, and as he wrapped up his sixth summit, uh, I told myself, oh, I, I've got to approach him. So I did. I, I met with him and his parents and told him what I wanted to do, and he was flattered that anyone would think to write a book about him that's how humble he is and i set out on this journey to document the uh... climbs that he had already uh, the summits he had attained and his attempt at mount everest wrapping up with the summiting of mount everest this past may as you said
1: well he started thinking about this four years ago he was nine years old and there was a mural in his school that showed what the the summits around the world
5: Yes, the Seven Summits, known mainly to mountaineers, people in the climbing community, but uh, of course they're becoming more well known now.
1: And so here he is, a third grader, and, and and comes home and announces to his father that he wants to climb Mount Everest. <laughs> That's Mount Everest his goal. That's.
5: A- I know, <laughs> and and the thing is, he was a cle- he's a very bright kid, and he was clever enough to have. Uh, he saw that mural, and then he went to the school library, and he looked up seven summits, and he did his research. He was able to come to his dad and say, Dad, I want to climb Mount Kilimanjaro and Mount Elbrus and Mount Nacondagwa and, and and Mount Car- and Carson's Pyramid and Kosciuszko and Everest and Vincent, and he had all the statistics and the facts and figures and what time of year to climb, and he had it mapped out, which which definitely blew his dad away.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness, yes. I mean, you know, it's one thing uh, that kids come to us with their dreams and their goals, but there's probably only one Jordan, isn't there?
5: There's probably only one Jordan. And uh, I, I must say that there were concerned parents uh, who heard of, uh, especially the, when the focus came up in the spotlight on the, the attempt at Everest, who said, ah, how how could anyone take their child up right. there? That's, that's child abuse, or, or <laughs> that's that's... Very, very irresponsible. Yeah, they're just they trying to take understand.
1: advantage of this young boy so they can make a lot of money or something, right?
5: Right. They thought he was being exploited or dragged right. up there or carried up there to, for some reality show purposes. Right. But no, that's not the truth. The, the truth of the matter is that people didn't—they weren't familiar with Jordan's background. He was already climbing mountains. Uh, His—he comes from his father is an adventure uh, racer and climber. His his family, his grandfather—they're all mountain climbers. They're all. Skiers, ski patrol, athletes, all-American football. I mean, these this is a family of jocks. They really are. And so Jordan was strapped onto a, a backpack at, when he was a few months old and going up mountains. So he, this is a terrain that's very familiar to him. And he had good people around him to train him. So it's, he, is the, he is, there's only one Jordan. I, I, and, and he's not telling people to try to duplicate what he's done. His message is really in this book to try to find your own avarice and whatever that may be set a big goal and break it down into small pieces
1: right well that's a message to all of us at all ages obviously Uh, we all have dreams well let's turn a dream into a goal and then it may sound wild and crazy uh, to others but go for it that's what he's saying right
5: right go for it within your means within your capacity whatever your aptitude is but don't just settle or don't uh, turn away from that dream because that will come back to haunt you later you do want to go for it you don't have to even attain it it's just it, the, the celebration is in the journey itself
1: well in this radio interview we certainly can't do justice to way the way you created this book it is so different, so visual uh, it's really geared toward the uh, What age group would you say, mostly?
5: Well, whenever you publish a book, you have to have kind of a target audience, and that just helps you uh, gear it toward that audience, everything you put into it. So I had, my target was ages 8 to 14 or 15, although I, adults are approaching me and, and they're saying that this book is inspiring them as well. And they're loving the fact that it's visual and it doesn't have a lot of text. (laughs) Everyone likes to look at pictures. Right. (laughs) Lots of (laughs) pictures.
1: (laughs) Lots of outdoor pictures. Lots of uh, different kinds of graphics, you know, explaining all that uh, Jordan had to do and and what he accomplished.
5: Right. I wanted to take the reader along on these journeys so that they could kind of experience them in a vicarious way through the photos and really see what he was seeing.
1: Of course, we can go to uh, two different websites and see all that we're talking about. Tell us those websites.
5: Okay, uh, there are two outstanding websites. One is for the book itself, and that's just simply the title, Boy Who Conquered Everest.com, all run together, Boy Who Conquered Everest.com. That has information on the book itself. And then uh, to learn more about Jordan Romero, he has a terrific website that's always changing and updating, and that is www.jordanromero.com, and that's J-O-R-D-A-N-R-O-M-E-R-O, jordanromero.com. And that that'll keeps you posted on what he's doing. He has a blog. He has photos. He's preparing to do another uh, climb this winter, uh, summiting Mount Vincent in Antarctica. So he's always doing things. Great site.
1: Now, of course, to do something as monumental as this, he had to find people who believed in him, and not only just uh, for uh, emotional support, and but for money.
5: Right. Yes, it's very expensive. Jordan is not from a wealthy family, so uh, and that was another uh, misunderstanding. People thought that he was the, uh, just some rich kid who was... Uh, trying to find something to do and with his money and, and uh, that's not the case he, he sold t-shirts they had taco night fundraisers he spoke with people from the outdoor products industry telling them about his goals uh, he had to get sponsors most of his sponsors were from the industry itself and a lot of the, the sponsorship was simply equipment donations so it, it was a they had to take out personal loans and it was a struggle And then just as he was about to summit Everest, two sponsors had their own financial difficulties, I guess, and they pulled out. So it was down to the wire. It was really scary for them, one minute on, one minute off. But, yes, very, very expensive. Um, And he did. He he went around to every place, every company, every individual he could and told them about his dream, and he did. He found people who believed in him and companies who believed in him.
1: Now, in preparing for Everest... He climbed how many mountains and on how many different continents?
5: He climbed six, um, starting in Africa, Mount Kilimanjaro at the age of 10. And then he continued on, and he climbed... Uh,
1: and that's 19,000 feet. Ten years old, right. climbing 19,340 feet.
5: <laughs> right, and, and everybody kept telling him, slow down, pace yourself. But he just, he was so prepared. He'd been training like a wild man for this. And so he was in great shape, and uh, he was actually leading the expedition up. And the people, especially the the Tanzanian guides, they just fell in love with him.
1: <laughs> oh, I'm sure and he
5: was their little hero.
1: <laughs> oh my goodness, yes. So he went from Mount Kilimanjaro, and then what else?
5: Well, he continued on. The second the second summit was Mount Kosciuszko, which is it's a very funny one. Uh, it's not a very tall mountain. It's in Australia, but it is tallest, the tallest peak on the continent of Australia. So there is a thing in mountain climbing, uh, a dispute over the seven summits and whether that is, uh, truly uh, qualifies or not. So in order to dispel any argument, Jordan said, nope, let's climb it. So actually uh, it will end up being a total of, when he finishes Antarctica, article, the eight that he's done. But that, that way he's conquered all seven summits without question. So Kosciuszko, and he did that in 2007, then he went on to Russia, to Europe, Mount Elbrus. Elbrus is the tallest uh, summit in Russia, and that is 18,500 feet. He did that in July of 2007, one day before his birthday, which was made a special birthday. Then his fourth summit was Mount Akankagwa, and that was nearly 23,000 feet, and that is a brutal mountain. Uh, many people die on that mountain. Many expeditions don't even make it to the top because of the wind. Uh, the winds can reach up 110 miles an hour and with ice crystals, and they've blown people off the mountain. So he, he, he had to get a special permit for that because he was technically too young. But he was able to demonstrate that he was in shape and had the mental and physical capabilities and the training to do it. Uh, it also helped that his father, Paul, is a medic trained in uh, wilderness medicine, and uh, so he's, you know, he had really good support. So he uh, completed that summit in December of 2007. Then he went on to Mount McKinley, which is also known as Denali, in the state of Alaska in the U.S. That's 20,320 feet, also a very dangerous mountain certain times of the year. But they were very strategic in planning the the date of their their, uh, expedition, their climb. He summited that in June of 2008. Then they went on to the tropics to Papua New Guinea, and he summited uh, the Karsten's Pyramid, which is uh, 16,024 feet. That is the one, the other of the two controversial summits, because this one is on the uh, technically considered the Australian continental shelf, so it's a separate landmass from Australia. So you see where the, the technical uh, arguments go back and forth with that. So he went ahead and climbed that one, which was solid rock, He left rainforest at the bottom and ended up in just freezing rain at the top. (laughs) Totally different climate. Completed that September of 2009. And then he was planning on going to Antarctica, but he was considered too young. They denied him a permit. So he said, okay, we'll do that later. And he went on to Everest.
1: (laughs) (laughs) On to Everest. at. uh,
5: On to Everest. Yes, what,
1: 29,000? Was that the... Yes,
5: 29,000. 29,035 is the latest recorded one.
1: With winds that could get up to 100 miles an hour and temperatures that could be 40 below.
5: And Mount Everest is, it's not a solid, you know, you think of it as this mountain that's going to be there forever. Mount Everest is actually crumbling. It is eroding and crumbling and melting. And so he had to deal with uh, collapses of entire ice, which are huge columns that are melting and falling. Uh, the rock itself is, is decomposed, and is, it crumbles. Uh, huge chunks of it will come down. If the climber above you has a toehold and it breaks loose, so, uh, a piece of rock the size of a suitcase can come straight at you. Uh, yeah, he had the, to deal with a lot, and the weather is the number one factor because technically uh, Everest is pretty mapped out in terms of how to summit, how to climb it, and he went on the north side from Tibet Tibet slash China Uh, but yeah the weather But but the whole secret of climbing Everest is that you have to find what's called a weather window which are these little breaks that come just from mid April to late May and then that window closes up and once it closes up you can still try to summit it but it's it's extremely dangerous and his family didn't want to put him in any kind of danger other than what he would expect normally on Everest which is uh, risky enough
1: So again, on May 22nd, 2010, he reached the summit, 13 years young. And as you write, there's only one Jordan Romero. Not only is he a world record setter, but he lives to inspire other kids to achieve big goals and dreams. Well, that kind of sums it up. I guess what really I'd like to just end on is a quote that you have in the book. The first man to climb to the summit of Mount Everest in 1953 sir edmund hillary and what did he say
5: he said it is not the mountain we conquer but ourselves
1: that's really what jordan is all about isn't he
5: yes that sums it up beautifully
1: well tell us how to get your book catherine
5: well this book the boy who conquered everest is available uh through directly through balaboa press it's also available from hay house which is the kind of the co-publisher and, of course, uh, uh, online, uh, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Orders.com, etc., as well as uh, available for an order through your local bookseller.
1: Well, thank you so much. My goodness, what an inspirational young man and what an inspirational story. Thank you for investing of yourself and making us aware and giving us so much to think about and this is only the beginning i'm sure there's going to be much more from jordan
5: it's only the beginning yes definitely not only will he he continue to climb mountains but he will continue to inspire others uh to live healthy lifestyles to get outside get together with their families and do activities together that's what he's all about
1: thank you catherine
5: thank you take care steve
1: that was catherine blank she is the author of her book, The Boy Who Conquered Everest. And this interview is brought to you by Balboa Press.
0: iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio,
2: radio with a cutting edge.